we're not all going to get to hang out in heaven afterwards. I mean, there are some nice things about that for sure, right? But if that's not the case, it makes the relationships and the friendships and the experiences that we have now so much more powerful and meaningful and important. And I think it's just better if we think about things in that way. So hence, a better life. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief. My name is Ryan Bell, and I am your host, and this is episode 54 Today, I want to share with you a conversation that I recorded a few days ago with Chris Johnson, filmmaker, photographer, Chris Johnson. Uh, Chris and I met uh, a year or so ago in Dallas at a conference. We'll talk a little bit about that. But, but Chris has spent the last number of years of his life working on a project called A Better Life. And when I first started my journey called A Year Without God, his book, A Better Life, had just come out in December 2013, right as I began my blog in January of 2014. It wasn't too long after that that someone that had uh, become a friend and had started reading my blog sent me uh, a copy of Chris's book, and it was an instantly a source of encouragement and uh, a very positive influence in my own experience. Uh, if you haven't seen this book, um, please go online and check it out. All the information about the book is in the show notes. But it is a coffee table-sized, large-format photography book. Beautiful portraits um, and other photos of the subjects that, that Chris uh, writes about and, and, and interviews. And then later, um, a year or so after that, uh, the film came out. And then, um, as we talk about in this episode, Chris has been traveling around the world sharing this film and the stories of the people in it with audiences. To me, this conversation really epitomizes what I have in mind when I think about this podcast and the kind of uh, encouragement that I hope it brings to um, each of you. I also hope that it's a kind of shareable episode. Some, some episodes are, are probably not as easily shareable with people in your life who are still strong believers but my conversation with Chris today really does sort of stand in that space between belief and unbelief and really strives, as I think Chris does in his project, for understanding. Even though we may never find full agreement uh, with people around the subject of religion and faith, we can at least understand where each other are coming from and hopefully build relationships based on, on that understanding, even if uh, we end up um, at different conclusions so I hope this uh, episode encourages you. I hope it's something that you can perhaps share with a friend, uh, maybe a family member who is trying to understand a little bit more where you and others uh, like you are coming from, and maybe it can spark a positive conversation. I hope you'll also download the film um, and get the book and share it as well. Maybe the film provides 
a uh, jumping off place for you and your family or you and some friends to have a conversation about um, how life can be truly beautiful and good even without uh, belief in God. So without any further delay, here's my conversation with Chris Johnson. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Oh, man, it's a, it's a pleasure, and it's way overdue. We've been talking about this for uh, for far too long. Yeah, and we I think we first met about, was it a year and a half ago? Yeah, at the uh, the last Apostacon, I guess. Yes. And um, yeah, that was, uh, that was a great gathering, and I met so many people that I hadn't met before at, at, that, uh, at that event. So it was great to meet you, and you've been on the go ever since. So I, I basically, you know, people know you because you've been very involved for going on four, year, four years, well, since the publishing of the book, but it's, I'm sure you were in production of the book for much, much longer than that. Um, so for years, you've been working on this project that we're going to talk about, A Better Life, the book A Better Life, and then the film. So what's the backstory? Like, how did you decide to, uh, to do this project, A Better Life? It's because something like this didn't already exist. Um, I'm a I'm a big proponent of doing things because there's a need and not just because that's what everybody else is doing. And uh, so I realized that most of the books about atheism, most of the the work about atheism was intellectual, uh, was uh, was large books of text, and I thought. Well, you know what's missing is how can we approach this in a different way? How can we approach this from an artistic way? How can we approach this um, from a way that isn't simply going to reach the people who read large intellectual books? Right. And my brother said to me, um, uh, not related to that, Chris, you should make a photography book. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I don't want to do that. There's so many books out there, so many photography books. Nobody (laughs) knows me. Nobody cares. And he said, well, you just have to think of a way of making something different. And then these two ideas came together. And I thought, well, what if I made a photography book about atheists? And I thought for sure someone had already done it, right? You know, you always have an idea and you think, oh, this is really great. And then you find that someone's already done it. Um, but I looked and I couldn't find that anything like this existed. So I thought this is really what I need to do. And, uh, and that's really what, what came of it. And when was that? How long ago? The idea got you. The idea was my brother and I were on a road trip traveling from San Antonio up to Seattle. Um, and, uh, he mentioned that when we're at White Sands National Monument in New Mexico, that's where the idea occurred. So again, in this gorgeous space, um, you know, it's like being on another planet. I mean, all you see are these incredible sand dunes and sky and it's just amazing. Spiritual, some might say, right? Right. And being in a space like that and thinking about ideas of, of God and, and religion and atheism and, and all of that. Um, you know, everything kind of came together to, uh, to make this happen. So it was, the book came out in 2013, but this must have been a, a number of years before that. Yeah, this was, it took about two years from, I think, the idea to the actual book coming out, maybe a little longer. And you are um, the photographer and the author, right? Both, you did all the photography and the writing? 
Yeah, uh, the the writing, some of it is written uh, from the individuals in the book and some uh, is taken from transcripts uh, from my interviews with the people. Wow, that's fantastic. But, yeah, all the photography too I did. It's beautifully done. And if you know, if folks that are listening haven't seen it, it's um it really is um exactly what I think you set out to do. It's informative and inspiring, but it's also beautiful. Um the portraits are 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 really, really nice and they're in different um contexts. You know, they're not just straight portraits. And um I have a friend who is a architectural photographer, but he also does fantastic portraits and um, they're so interesting and, and, and moving. And, and I, I find your book the same way and it's a wide range. I mean, it's the, it's the kind of people that you would expect to find in a book like this, like Richard Dawkins or Pendulette, but also people you've probably, you know, folks have probably never heard of. How did you go about deciding who to interview and, finding lesser known atheists that you thought were interesting to talk to. Well, that's, well, thank you, first of all, for that glowing endorsement. But also, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do a project like this was I wanted to show that atheists are not simply uh, the stereotype that people think. We're not all college professors, right? So not only did we need in the atheist community works showing um, our creative side, and our artistic side, um, but also a representation of us that was broader than just academic. So I wanted to include people like uh, my friend Nick, who's an airline pilot. He's in the book. And he's just somebody I know in in real life. Um, And uh, my friend Helena, who works for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, or, you know, someone who as an environmentalist or someone who, you know, all different kinds of professions. So, and ethnic backgrounds and religious backgrounds and religious backgrounds, you know, some people in the book uh, were never religious like myself. Um, but some came from very devout, uh, religious backgrounds. So I wanted to kind of show uh, a slice of, of our community, um, uh, to try to dispel some of those stereotypes. I mean, I think you really do uh, do that, and it's um, it's really fascinating. I mean, I as I flip through this a, a number of times, it, you know, I know a lot of these people now. Uh, in fact, the funny thing from my personal perspective, the, the book, the copyright date is December two thousand thirteen, and that's when I decided to do a year without God in December of two thousand thirteen, and. Of course, at that point, I had no idea about this book or really most of the people in it. I mean, I had heard of Christopher Hitchens, who had by that point passed away, and Richard Dawkins. And to a lesser degree, I had heard of Sam Harris. I had his book, A Letter to a Christian Nation, but that's pretty much it. And other than that, I didn't realize that there even was an organized atheist community, as it were. And um, and so then one of the first things that happens, you know, as I hear about your book in 2014 when it comes out and and um, one of my um, now friends sent me a copy of it and it was really inspiring in those early days to just see the diversity of people. And now that I know some of these folks, some of them I haven't met, many of these individuals that are the, the uh, ones that folks would know, I have... Um, I've met some of them and I'm just thinking what an inspiring experience it must have been for you to actually sit down and talk to these folks. And 
was it was it difficult to get access to some of them or or did it did the doors open pretty pretty readily it really depends on the person um some people are harder to reach than others but one thing that did surprise me is you know the power of an email right and the the, the power of an idea mm-hmm. you know if your idea is good enough and unique enough um i think it can open doors that wouldn't necessarily uh, be open uh, yeah. for for something else. So it did surprise me that it was easy uh, in many respects to get people on board for this. And I think one of the reasons for that was because it was such a new idea, because this kind of thing didn't really exist. And so people who might have been a little bit more reluctant had this kind of been a thing that people did all the time, um, were a lot more willing to to say, wow, yeah, this is a great idea. I'd love to do this. Yeah. And it's interesting too, like I'm, I've uh, just in the last couple of days, I've, I've pulled the book out and flipped back through it again. And um, again, now that I'm more familiar with the, the community and some of the individuals, you know, not all of these folks like each other either. You know, it's interesting. It's like, you know, some of the classic debates within the atheist community are between some of these folks. And um, it's really, I think, a testament to your project that the the goal here is not, um, it seems to me at least, to create some kind of monolith of what atheism means or to try to make some ideological statement about um, about atheists or, or atheist ideology, if there is such a thing, but rather to say, here's a range of people who are so different from one another who basically have found a way to make a meaningful life without God in it. And, and is that, is that kind of, um, is that kind of an accurate assessment of what your, what your project was? Yeah, absolutely. And it did also get me in a little bit of trouble too. I, I would get emails from supporters of one person or another person saying, Oh, why do you have this person in there? Why do you have that person? I in wondered. There? And, yeah. 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 Did some people decline uh, to be involved because other people were involved. Uh, no, no, no. As far as I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, great. Right. You might not know. They didn't tell me. Uh, right. uh, there were some people that did decline or, or I didn't hear back from them. Um, but I don't necessarily know the reasons in all cases why people did. Is there a, a particular person that you think back and you think, gosh, I really wish I could have included that one? Um, I, I you know, I really would have liked to have spoken to Sam Harris. Um, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't hear hear back from him. I tried multiple ways of, of getting a hold of him, but, uh, but I didn't make that connection. Unfortunately, I think that would have been a, a very interesting conversation. Yeah. He's a, uh, he's notoriously, um, off the radar when it comes to being able to contact him and stuff. And it's, you know, I think one of the criticisms that's often leveled at, um, the secular humanist atheist, however you want to look at it, um, you know, various, configurations of this community is that it tends to be overwhelmingly male and white and straight. But your book, I mean, I haven't gone through and counted them. I bet you have. I, <laughs> I In fact, I'm sure you have. It's very diverse. And I suppose you did that partially intentionally, but I, I imagine it also sort of happened quite naturally. Is that true? Yeah, it, that was one of the that was one of the goals I had with this project was to make it diverse. Um, and yeah, I did have a list. I had a whole spreadsheet, um, to, to figure this out. Um, there are parts of the world that I wish I could have had representation from, Mm -hmm. could have gone to, 
um, uh, more you know places in Asia, places in Africa. Um, but unfortunately, just the budget didn't allow that to happen. Um, but yeah, I, it definitely was intentional to try to show a diverse group of people and not just that we're a bunch of old white straight men. Yeah, as but, much as we love old white straight men. Oh, they're lovely, aren't they? I'll, I will very <laughs> soon be an old white straight man. I mean, maybe some people probably think I'm already an old white straight man. I'm not as old, though, guys. Come on. I'm not that old yet. One day, one day. A couple things, man, a couple things jumped to mind. You mentioned a second ago the budget and the logistics, and it, that very thought crossed my mind again recently as I looked at the book again. That, you know, obviously as a photographer and you're shooting these individuals on location, as it were, in their life, kind of representing what they do and what they care about. And like sometimes it's with their family or with their animals, their pets or with uh, doing their job or whatever it is that um, the context. But you go to each of these people's place. So that that took some organizing and time. And I, and I dare say money. Um, how did how did that aspect of it come together for you? Yeah, it's funny with doing the book and then subsequently doing the film and the the screening tour. Um, I look back at one of my first jobs when I moved to New York City uh, almost ten years ago now was working as a travel coordinator for uh, an architectural firm. And you know, I've done more travel coordinating working on this whole project than I ever did when I was actually a travel coordinator. Um, it, yeah. It took a lot of, uh, you know, logistics and figuring things out and organization. It was a huge undertaking, just the travel portion, getting all of that organized. Um, lots of spreadsheets. Um, <laughs> more you know, spreadsheets. More spreadsheets. I think people think my life is a lot more glamorous than it really is. You know, right, right, it's, right. Uh, it's a lot of spreadsheets. Um, well, there are a lot of variables. Turns, no, you could you could definitely say, oh, the Northeast, there's a cluster of, well, you live there, but let's say like the Southwest, oh, there's a cluster of people that live in California and Arizona and New Mexico maybe or whatever. But to to pull that off, they all have to be available the same couple of weeks, you know? So it's not like you can just go to California in like say Los Angeles and get everyone necessarily, right? Like sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Right, right. And I was I was very lucky in that um, most people, because they knew I was one person traveling around doing this, <laughs> were more flexible. That's um, uh, but yeah, it was, um, I'm surprised now that you mention it, I'm actually surprised it worked out as well as it did. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Google calendar and spreadsheets and just, you know, stand on top of communication with people. One of the most interesting things that happened. I don't know if I want to call it interesting, but um, uh, emotional experiences that I had working on the, the book was when I went to go photograph and interview Greta Christina mm. in San Francisco. And the day I was supposed to interview her, I got a phone call in the morning um, and it was her telling me that her father had passed away. Oh, wow. And that she would need to reschedule, you know, oh, you know, I realize you're traveling a lot. Is there any way you could reschedule? So I looked at my calendar and there was one day uh, after I'd went to Yosemite to meet with Alex Honnold where I'd be back in San Francisco and I could do it that that last day. So we rescheduled for about a week, week and a half later, mm -hmm. something like that. And go to Yosemite, come back go meet with Greta, 
do the photo shoot, do the interview, met her wife, Ingrid. Mm-hmm. We had a great time. It was it was wonderful. Um, and then a couple of days later, I read on Greta's blog, uh, a few days ago, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Oh, my gosh. And just literally like five minutes later, I got an email from her saying, I'm sorry if I seemed a bit off during our meeting. I got the call that I was diagnosed with cancer literally 30 seconds before you rang the doorbell. What? And obviously wow. she didn't tell me. She hadn't told Ingrid at that point. I mean, it, it kind of colored everything about what that interaction was like. And I, I can't even imagine for her. I mean, here here's this photographer she's never met before asking her questions about life and death and meaning and she's just got cancer diagnosis and she's the only one who knows wow and she just held it together yeah wow that's such a a testament to her incredible yeah strength and wow did you at the time think there was something off i mean you didn't know her that well at that point i guess but like did you feel like maybe there was something going on or was it just kind of a normal day for you no not at all Wow, Not that's incredible. She, she seemed fine. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so actually, she writes about that in the book. If you if you uh, see her page and the photo of the two of them together, mm-hmm. I mean, it's even much more poignant now seeing that photograph of these two women and knowing the backstory behind that situation. Yeah, um, and an interesting note as well is um, last year I went to um, Sacramento Free Thought Day. And Greta and Ingrid were coming up from San Francisco to to speak there as well. And uh, it was the first time I had seen both of them since we had all met for the photo shoot. Right. And uh, on the way from San Francisco to Sacramento, um, they got rear-ended in a car accident. Oh, my. And they were fine. But there's something uh, about me. <laughs> I'm just some bad luck for the two of them. So I should never interact. With I know. Them again. They're like, oh, my God, Chris is coming. Let's stay home. <laughs> I know. <laughs> if I'm ever in San Francisco, I need to tell them, like, I'm don't get be out town. of bed. Just, right, just stay in the house. Yeah. yeah I'm don't. a bad omen. <laughs> don't walk under anything that's high above you or like, yeah, just be very careful. Oh, my gosh. Not that we're superstitious or anything. Right. That's not right, funny. Right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, I wanted to ask you, I want to get into the, because I know you go on to um, then produce a film out of these interviews. Um, But before we jump into that, why the title A Better Life? I actually remember sitting in the car with my brother, driving through the Southwest and writing on my phone, or it was probably an iPod Touch at the time, uh, writing down... um, uh, title ideas. So I remember thinking like, should it be called like a better life, the better life, you know, like thinking of all these different permutations. You're like, well, what works? Um, I like the term because it's very optimistic. Um, Mm -hmm. it's engaging and it also is, is slightly provocative as well. I've gotten some people saying, Oh, are you, are you saying you're better? Um, Uh, well, I was wondering, (laughs) which, yeah. Um, but so I, I, I like how uh, it does both those things at the same time. It does definitely provoke the question better than what. Mm-hmm. And, and I think for each person, and I think because it is a collection of a hundred stories, it's better than whatever, 
you know, it better is relative, right? So mm. what's better from in my life is going to be different than what's better in somebody else's life. But each person ha- is expressing this. Um, how, what percentage of them, of your subjects, um, were religious before? And for them, secularism, atheism, humanism was better than what they were doing before. And how many of them were just like trying to live their best life? That's a really good question. I don't know off the top of my head what percentage were religious before. I would probably, if I had to guess, um, probably about three-fourths. Yeah. I would imagine, 75%. That's probably reflective of just the general population, right? Like, I mean, America, the United States, and Canada, less less so in Canada, but, I mean, North, North America is still a pretty religious society, and um, I guess you go to England. What other countries did you visit? Uh, uh, England, Ireland, uh, Germany, um, Canada. Uh, where else did I go uh, for the book? Uh, that was, I think so that was we, it. So, yeah, Western Europe, the UK, mm-hmm. and the US, and Canada. Yeah, North America. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I think 75% is probably, you know, especially in the US, pretty representative of like, if you randomly picked any atheist out of a lineup and said, were you religious before? Probably 75% of them would say yes, or, or maybe more. So the, the book came out in um, the end of 2013, really hit its stride in 2014. You had done a Kickstarter campaign or something similar uh, to help fund it, right? And then, yeah. and then was the film always a part of the idea, or did that idea dawn on you later? Were you doing these interviews by video? Yeah, I had been a film production major when I was in college. So film production major and religious studies minor. So great combination of my college degree right now. Um, Yeah, so I'd always had the idea to do the film as well because I knew I was going to be interviewing all these people and I didn't just want to have an audio recording of the interviews. So why don't I film the interviews as well? So that way at the end of the project, in addition to having the book, I have, you know, I had about 70 or 80 hours of interview footage oh my. to then turn into the film. And that took about nine months of <laughs> editing, additional shooting and things like that. So that's a, it's quite a long process. Right. So, um, and you were a one person production crew the whole time when you were traveling, like you had to set up the shots and then, and figure it all out by yourself, right? Aud- yeah. For audio. the most part. Yeah. Uh, for shots in the film that I'm in, there are some of those. Um, I had friends shoot. Um, my brother and I went back to White Sands to shoot some stuff. Yeah. Um, friends traveled with me sometimes, helped me shoot. But most of the time with the interviews, uh, it was just myself. And that's really a testament to, to modern technology. And even versus 10 years ago, mm. the, the amount you're able to do as kind of a, a one-man band operation um, and still produce a, a quality product at the end is, is pretty incredible. So now you've been touring with the film for, what, 18 months or something like that? Almost two, no, uh, two years this month. Wow. So that's, yeah. so that's, that's a busy schedule as well. Um, how are you able to keep that up? I mean, I imagine you have a day job and stuff. Uh, no, no, this is my job right now. Oh, that's um, great. Uh, well, job in quotation fingers. Um, <laughs> it doesn't make me any money, uh, but it's what I do full time. Okay. Um, 
because I think it's important, um, because I think it, uh, it, you know, it's making a difference. Um, I, when I first came out with a film, I thought to myself, okay, I'll do like 10 screenings, you know, I'll go to big cities and do a couple screenings and I'll do something else with my life after that. Right. Um, I've now done 96 cities oh my. on five continents that oh. I've got to show the film. Um, so continents it, you it, never visited to do interviews, but you've gone there to do screenings now. Oh yeah. I mean, I've, you know, we talked about the countries when I do the book. It was like what, five countries or something. Right. I've shown the film now in 17 countries. Um, mm. it's really been an incredible journey, um, and an unexpected one. You should write but about be- that. <laughs> Are you going to write about that? Yeah. Yeah. It's something I definitely want to, uh, to, to, uh, think about more and really come to, to, to terms of what I want to talk about, Mm -hmm. about the experience, because it's, it's really been an incredible, um, journey for me. Um, you know, doing the book, uh, was, was wonderful. Doing the film was wonderful, but, you know, taking the, the work, taking the piece and traveling around and meeting people in person and showing them your film and talking about it afterwards, uh, that kind of, process is as an artist is just incredible to be able to have that one-on-one interaction and meet people from all different backgrounds who see the film and experience it in in a different way you know coming from whatever background they're coming from and identify with one person versus another person and you know religious or not religious i've had religious people come to my screenings and learn more about atheists than they knew before seeing the film. And right. it's, it's just an incredible process. As a story person myself, storyteller, story collector, I sometimes say, um, which I'm sure resonates with you, I, mm-hmm. I get the value of story full stop, like in and of itself, not as an uh, instrument to accomplish something else. So, I mean, I think story, and when I listen to This American Life or um, Radio Lab, I mean, sometimes the story... For someone to say, oh, what's that story good for would be to demean the story in some way. It's like, it's a story, man. Like, it's just, it's fantastic to hear the experience of another human being in in really almost any situation or context. But on top of that, you said a second ago, too, that the reason you've committed your full-time schedule to this is because it's making a difference. And I, I wonder what kind of a difference you see it making or what kind of difference you intend for it to make and whether those two are are related or what you've learned about the difference that it ought to make? Well, my hope is that people can see this work and think about atheists in a different way, whether they're atheists themselves or whether they're religious. Think about their own life or think about the lives of, of people around them who might not be religious um, in a different way, a po- more positive way. Right. Um, and really think about the big questions in life. Because we as an atheist community spend, what, 90% of our time telling everybody how awful religion is, mm. how, how terrible religion is to the world and harmful. And that all might be true. But at the same time, we need to spend more time talking about how we do see the world if we want people to look at our side and and kind of come over and understand what we're 
what we're thinking and, and how we see the world and how we answer the questions of what happens after death? How do I view my own mortality? How do I experience life in the short amount of time that I have? How should I spend the short amount of time that I have? What should I do in this time? Mm. And I feel like as a community, we're doing a better job at this now, but for a long time, we really weren't. And that's one of the reasons why I felt like this was needed is because we don't talk about those things. And as you very well know, um, religious people do talk about those questions and those ideas. They might come up with different answers than we do, but for the longest time, we weren't even talking about it. And so my hope is that people see the film or read the book and think about their own life and think, oh, well, how am I spending my time? If, you know, A.C. Grayling says in the film, you know, if you live to be 80, hmm. you have less than a thousand months in your life. And 300 of them, you're asleep. And another 300 of them, you're waiting in line somewhere. Yeah. So you've got 300 months to do whatever you want to do in your life. And that's best case scenario, oh, right? Oh, shit. I, I know. Sorry to be a downer. I got to be. But, I got to get busy. <laughs> At least but, I'm busy right now doing this with you. This is good. You're you're incredibly busy. I'm amazed you fit everything into what you do. Um, but yeah, you've got 300 months. So how do you want to spend that? And that's really what inspired me to do the tour as well. Is that you know I could be like I said, this isn't financially lucrative at all, but uh, it's meaningful to me, and I'd rather be poor and doing this than I would making money doing a job that I didn't really like right. because I have a short amount of time to do it. So, you know, I'll do, I'll do what I can in the moment. You know, I've often thought that, um, and I've, you know, I've only been, um, outside of religion, post religious atheist for, uh, almost three years or going on. Well, actually, like two and a half years. And then if you count the year without God, it's been, you know, three something years since I've been really delving into these questions. And I've often thought, you know, atheism is a, is sort of a resounding no to a particular question. Um, mm -hmm. and as a no, it doesn't really have a ton of positive content. There's not like you're saying, um, it, it's, it's more about what we don't believe. It's in fact, it's exclusively about what pe certain people don't believe or don't subscribe to or don't spend their time doing. It doesn't mm -hmm. really say much about what we do or what we believe or what we do spend our time doing or where our values lie. Um, as a result, you know, a lot of atheists, perhaps most, I don't know, um, are also uh, humanists or maybe they spend their time doing science or philosophy or some other positive venture that is related to their atheism, but not directly like synonymous with it. Um, mm -hmm. and do you see any kind of pattern across the people that you've spoken to? And then in addition to that, the people that you've interacted with on the road that would indicate that there's a kind of, um, common denominator among atheists or is it as diverse as it often seems to me? I think it is as diverse as, as it seems to you, um, it's one of the incredible things, again, to to travel and meet all these different groups, you know, people that have entirely different cultural and religious backgrounds, who grew up in completely different areas of the world, speaking different languages, and yet we share these common 
views on life and the world. And, you know, we are a very small community, but we're a community that is international, that is worldwide. You can go to, you know, anywhere from Iceland to China to, um, you know, New Zealand and find people who share these values and want to have these conversations about, okay, if there is no God, how do we live our lives? How do we see the world? How do we interact with each other? How do we deal with um, death and and how do we deal with all the things that come up in life? And also, I think part of that is showing some compassion towards our religious uh, friends and family members and those in our community, too. Because one of the things I tried to do as well, with, with the, the film at least, uh, was to show, at least from my perspective, some compassion towards the the yearning and desire that people have for order in a universe that doesn't seem to care about you. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, for example, there's a piece in the film where I go to a, the ruins of a chapel in Scotland, and I look at these ruins, and I talk about how, even as an atheist, I can look at these structures and understand that there were people who came to these places out of desperation, wanting and yearning to understand why things happen in the world. And so I can understand why people pray, why people feel the need to reach out to a God in in difficult times. I completely understand that. And I think the more we as a community show some understanding of that, Mm. I think people might be a little bit kinder to us as a movement. We understand where they're coming from. At least I do. I don't know if everybody does, but I, for one, definitely do. Yeah, I think that's so important. Uh, Someone has to make the first move. Someone has to, like, even say, like, with an intimate partner or a close friend, and you're having a disagreement, someone has to make the first step to say, all right, let's sit down, tell me how you're feeling, let me try to understand this, like... And then, mm-hmm. and then be- without getting defensive and, and, you know, jumping in and interrupting and all of that saying, okay, now let, can I tell you how I'm feeling? And, and you try to like find, you know, some understanding, even if you don't end up agreeing, at least you can say, I get it. I get where you're coming from. I understand how, um, you know, and I've had people say to me, oh, I get it. Like you had a really hard time and people treated you badly. I understand how you could be an atheist. And then I would say, no, I don't, I don't think you quite understand completely <laughs> let, let me let me try again let me let me mm-hmm. um it's not just that people treated me badly though people have treated me badly but i think people have treated everybody badly so it's not um it's not that it's that you know blah 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 like something else you know and so you try again to explain um you know an atheist could say to a christian you know i get it like you're you you know you're a weakling and you need a sky daddy to take care of you i understand how you could be a christian and the, you know the christian <laughs> would say well it's a little patronizing, you know, that's not exactly it. Let me try again. Let me try to explain again why I why I'm a Christian. And until you get to that place where you think, okay, I think I get it now. I think I understand where that person's coming from. I still disagree, but or I still have a different perspective. Uh, but I at least um got that response from my partner, my conversation partner, to say, Yeah, I think you I think you do understand now. Um what's a beautiful place to be? And I feel like my podcast, what I try to do with the show is like really respect that space um, where we can 
hear each other, respect each other, disagree, perhaps disagree uh, vigorously. And, um, and I think the true light about conversations comes out at that point. Instead of just lobbing sort of ad hominem attacks or straw man arguments, uh, you, you finally get down to, okay, what are the issues really? And, um, and that's where it's, I think it gets fun, you know, and you can respect a person's humanity while at the same time having a, a really vigorous conversation. And I think what you point to in terms of the, your example about being at the ruins in Scotland is there's beauty there too. Um, there's, I mean, religious people have created some of the world's most magnificent art. So whatever that longing is, even if they end up placing that longing in something fictional, like that longing is productive. That longing is, is um, generative of some really incredible ideas, but also art and architecture and all the rest. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful world and there's room for, there's room for all of us. It seems to me. Yeah. Yeah. And there also can be joy and escapism in fantasy. That's true. Worlds that, that, you know, aren't real. And it's, it's odd to me that, you know, a, a lot of folks in the atheist community will kind of repeat this, this line of like, no, reality is all that matters. And then at the same time, they'll then go to a science fiction convention. And right. I'm like, hold on. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes fantasies can be useful or important. Um, and I wish we could just be a little bit more compassionate about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are complex creatures. I mean, the minute that we as mammals like looked in the proverbial mirror and said oh that's me like i recognize a reflection of myself in that mirror uh we became aware of ourselves life got infinitely more complicated at that point right and Mm -hmm. and we start really becoming emotional beings and um creatures that aren't purely rational in fact it takes a bit of effort to be rational um at times and some of the most beautiful moments in our lives, I think, and certainly in my life, are not so much irrational as they are just sort of non-rational. They're uh, moments of awe, uh, moments of love and feeling, you know, loving and being loved and feeling that feeling of love. Those aren't so much irrational as they just don't really relate to my rationality that much. <laughs> I can rationalize <laughs> about them later, um, but in that moment, they just sort of bypass that part of my brain. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that's just how we are. I mean, I think to deny that or to somehow make that seem less than or something to be ashamed of is just a waste of time. I mean, I think, and we miss out, I think, on so much of, of what's beautiful about the world. And I think that's what, you, you know, your book really captures that. Even that photograph that you were talking about a minute ago of, of, of Greta and, and her wife Ingrid is just so um, emotive, right? It's very beautiful and you can read a lot from it and... Um, I think that that's a gift that you have given to all of us in this project. Thank you. Hopefully. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a it's a long journey, but um it's been an incredibly rewarding one. And uh, you know, I hope that people get something out of it and I hope um it, you know, for me like that that's one of the amazing things is is knowing that this book is on coffee tables all over the world. I mean, that's it's an incredible experience that something that you put together is is changing people's views and opinions and and 
create, you know, giving people comfort in some cases, um, in places that, um, you might not expect. I mean, I know there are copies of the book in, in Sudan, for example, or, um, Saudi Arabia. I mean, all over the place. It's, it's really incredible. So what's next? I mean, how much more touring do you expect to do with this film? And then what are you, what are you thinking about the next stages of this, uh, of your creative life? Um, and also as it relates to this project. Well, uh, I'm going to be touring with the film until the end of December, till the end of the year. So I'm doing a 12 city tour in June and July. Um, and then doing some more dates that I'm still lining up for the end of the summer into the fall uh, and then December. Um, but that's going to be the end of the tour after December. Um, <laughs> we'll see what happens after that. Right. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I have several ideas. This is a tough act to follow because I've done something that I've found very rewarding personally, um, something that uh, I think has made a difference. And again, like I said before, with my work, I don't want to do something just because everyone else is doing it. I want to do something because there's a good reason to do it. And so I'm not exactly sure yet, but I have a couple of ideas that I'm still kind of working through and figuring out which ones are going to be viable and what would be a good thing to, to spend my time doing after. But it's a, uh, it's a little nerve wracking not knowing what you're going to do, but it's also very exciting. <laughs> I know that feeling so much. There's a world of possibilities. Oh, I'm sure you do. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a, um, uh, it's an interesting time to have things, things open, uh, in the future. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I'm not sure yet. Is there, a, um, as we kind of draw to the close here, is there, um, is there a particular story, uh, from the last two years of, sharing the film that stands out to you that you love to tell? I guess it kind of goes back to what I said before about meeting people from all different kinds of backgrounds who experience this work in, in a different way, in a way that's very personal. So, uh, for example, when I went to go, uh, show the film, uh, in Guatemala, we had, uh, I got an email, uh, a few days later from someone who came to the event and was from an Orthodox Jewish community in Guatemala and bought a DVD of the film to give to his parents because they were not accepting of him. Mm. And he was so excited to have a positive message that he could show to his parents who still weren't on board with the whole atheist thing. But that he could show them something that said, this is not just what I'm against. This is what I do believe. This is how I do see the world. And to get that kind of reaction from people all over the world, you know, I went to Peru to show the film and people traveled eight hours on a bus to come see the film because this is something they had never seen before, something that was so different in the atheist community, in the humanist community even, that we're not just going to talk about what we don't believe in. We're going to talk about what we do believe in. We're going to talk about beauty and art and love and life. You know, if we realize that we only have a short amount of time to live on this planet, right? Yeah. That makes it so much better, right? Mm. Going back to the title of the book and the film, I think it is better if you think you only have this short amount of time because it makes it that much more valuable. 
we're not all going to get to hang out in heaven afterwards. I mean, there are some nice things about that for sure, right? But if that's not the case, it makes the relationships and the friendships and the experiences that we have now so much more powerful and meaningful and important. And I think it's just better if we think about things in that way. So hence, a better life. Oh, that's fantastic. So if people haven't seen the film or read the book, where can they find more uh, about this and how do they, how do they get the, the film for themselves? Uh, the film is available as a download or as a streaming rental or as a DVD. And the book is available as well um, on my website, which is theatheistbook.com. Okay. Awesome. And I'll put that link in the show notes. And then is your upcoming sort of final stretch tour uh, posted on your website as well? Yeah, it's on there as well. If you can go to the, uh, theatheistbook.com slash tour. Okay. So maybe, uh, maybe Chris will be coming to a city near you in the coming six months or eight months or whatever we have left of this year. And um, I highly recommend um, folks come out and see the film with you and um, be a part of this experience. I got to meet you, as I said earlier, a couple of years ago or a year or so ago in uh, in um, whatever city that was. I guess we were in Dallas, weren't we? We were in Dallas. Dallas, yeah. Yeah, for Apostacon. And um, are you coming back to the West Coast on the final stretch? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be in San Jose. Okay. Awesome. Um, and also Salt Lake City and Reno, Las Vegas, a bunch of different places. It's funny. Vegas is closer to me than San Jose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe I'll maybe I'll zip out to Vegas and uh, catch up with you out there. It would be great to see you again, Ryan. Well, thank you, Chris, so much for the work that you're doing. Um, I know it has entailed and continues to entail a bit of personal sacrifice, um, <laughs> but you know, all good things do. Really, I think anything worth doing in life uh, involves a certain amount of um, sacrifice as well as you know joy. Of course, thanks for doing what you're doing. And um, thanks for sharing it with us. And we'll, uh, I hope to catch up with you down the road. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ryan. Well, I hope after you hear that conversation that you'll be motivated to check out his film, A Better Life, as well as the book that preceded it, also called A Better Life. If you go to his website, theatheistbook.com, you can really get a, a much deeper sense of what this book is about and what the film is about. There's wonderful photographs, a trailer for the film, a list of his upcoming speaking engagements, and the podcast that he's started in which he can expand upon this project and speak to people that perhaps didn't make it into the film about their better life. I hope you'll get a chance to hang out with Chris and see the film if he's coming to a city near you. It looks like he is uh, going to be in New York and Nashville, Tennessee and Memphis, Pensacola, Florida, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, San Jose, Salt Lake City, as he mentioned, Vegas and Boise, Idaho uh, before he finishes up this tour. So check out his website, see if he's coming to a city near you and uh, go say hi to Chris and check out the film. If you want to keep up with what we're doing here at the Life After God podcast, you can follow us on social media as well. On Twitter, we're at Our Life After God. On Facebook, you can just search for Life After God. You can also check out our website at lifeaftergod.org. When you do that, you'll be prompted to sign up for a newsletter if you like, and that's another good way to stay in touch. Thank you for spending a portion of your day with me. I hope that it's been an encouragement to you. 
If it has, share it with someone else. Follow us on iTunes and consider making a recurring monthly donation to support the show at patreon.com slash life after God. Thanks so much, everyone. And until next time, I'm your host, Ryan Bell. And this has been the Life After God podcast. Thank you.